there are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. So there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are our top stories. DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas narrowly dodges an impeachment resolution after eight Republicans joined with Democrats to send it to committee. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene reacts. Will Congress avoid a fast-approaching partial government shutdown this weekend? House members will weigh in on Speaker Johnson's two-step funding plan in a floor vote today. Janet Yellen speaking at the APEC Summit San Francisco, her statement on decoupling from China drawing criticism from some Republicans. The IDF uncovers evidence of tunnels linking Hamas operations to hospitals as Israeli troops continue their push through northern Gaza. Supreme Court justices agree to adopt a code of ethics for the first time. Find out what it does and why all nine of them agree to it. As the holiday season approaches, is the retail industry in bad shape? We speak to the host of NTD Business to give us updates on retailers and consumers. And high school debate is a place where students can sharpen their minds and learn to respond to different opinions, but some say the association in charge is stacking the deck against conservative students. We speak with a debate team insider. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome. Today is Tuesday, November 14th. And on that impeachment resolution, on the one hand, we have Mayorkas, who touts tackling fentanyl by interdicting 40,000 pounds of it just last year, and then also returning about a third of a million non-citizens since Title 42 ended. That's right, but there's also then the sheer volume of fentanyl coming in, people, the, all the border, illegal border crossers, of course, and then also the people on terrorist watch lists are attempting to cross the border. Yeah, 151 of them on this fiscal year, and all that border policy is costing taxpayers big money, half a trillion dollars, according to a report, but we'll get to that later with a guest. That's right. Our top story today, the House of Representatives voted late last night against advancing a resolution to impeach DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Democrats originally planned to try to kill the resolution, but instead moved to send it back to the Homeland Security Committee. The committee has been conducting its own Mayorkas investigation. The resolution was filed by Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene last week. It accuses Mayorkas of high crimes and misdemeanors and the willful admittance of illegal border crossers. Eight Republicans joined Democrats to pass the motion. They included Representatives Patrick McHenry, John Duarte and Ken Buck. Greene had a message for them after the vote. Here's the Congresswoman yesterday. 
They're going to face their voters. Uh, the American people are fed up. We have an invasion at the southern border, and Americans are dying every single day. But all we hear about is send money to Ukraine and send money to this. And people want Mayorkas impeached. They want accountability. And I, I cannot believe this. I'm outraged. Also, time is running out for Congress to avoid a partial government shutdown this weekend. Today is the first time the House is able to vote on Speaker Mike Johnson's two-step funding plan. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the move, which some GOP members are already pushing back on. Speaker Johnson's unusual two-step approach would extend funding for many government operations through the middle of January, while defense funding would run through early February. Gentlemen. But some Republicans oppose the stopgap bill for not cutting spending. Representative Matt Gates says Speaker Johnson's laddered bill fails to meet the mark. I understand that Mike Johnson is looking for about 75 days of breathing room here. I don't think that we made the right choices. The country's with us on the border. 75% of the country believes Washington spends too much money. I think we should have chosen one of those high hills to fight on. The lack of support from some in the GOP puts Johnson in a similar position to his predecessor, Kevin McCarthy, who relied on Democratic votes to keep the government open. Congressman Chip Roy says the House Speaker should not rely on Democrats to pass the stopgap bill under a suspension of the rules. Right now, I oppose this measure. I think it's a mistake. I, I don't support the rule advancing it. Suspension of the rules is a procedure requiring the support of two-thirds of the House. The procedure would allow Johnson to bypass a special vote where GOP members who oppose the bill could block it. Other Republicans like Senator Mitch McConnell have a brighter outlook on Johnson's plan. Been encouraged this year by the progress our Appropriations Committee has made toward restoring regular order to the way we fund the federal government. Some congressional Democrats also indicated they were open to Johnson's plan. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries said his party is carefully evaluating the proposal from the Republican leadership before giving approval. In a letter to Democratic colleagues, Jeffries noted that the GOP package met the Democratic demands to keep funding at current levels without steep reductions or what he called divisive Republican policy priorities. If successful on the House floor, the stopgap bill would need to pass the Democratic majority Senate. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has expressed support for Speaker Johnson's plan, especially its absence of spending cuts. If the bill is successful, it would then need to be signed into law by President Joe Biden by midnight on Friday. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Here to give us an update on steps to avoid a government shutdown is Lawrence Wilson, a reporter for the Epic Times. Good morning, Lawrence. Thank you for making the time today. What is House Republicans' plan to avoid a government shutdown that Speaker Mike Johnson dubbed a laddered CR? Well, basically, it's a CR, continuing revolution, that's a stopgap spending bill, but it comes in two stages. Uh, basically, just extends existing 2023 funding across the board, but in one batch that covers four broad areas of the federal government that would expire the next time on January 19th, the remainder, which is really the bulk of the spending, would expire on February 2nd. And that buys, uh, you know, a couple of more months for Congress to basically get its work done and get the 12 spending bills passed. So this is essentially a clean continuing resolution, correct? Yes. <clears throat> yes. And why would some 
House Freedom Caucus members like it while others oppose it? Well, it, it comes down to restoring regular order, which is something that many conservative Republicans have tried to do throughout the year. They want to vote on the 12 spending bills. They don't want to keep kicking the can down the road, to use the popular phrase. Now, uh, some are upset because it doesn't include, uh, for example, support for Israel or for Ukraine. Those are divisive topics, as we know. But Republicans really want to keep these things separate. Speaker Johnson wanted to have those things voted on separately. And that's in keeping with the big priority to present single subject bills. Don't lump everything all together. So there's mixed support. Some just don't like continuing resolutions. They want to get the job done now. So what is the advantage to Johnson's plan to avoid these budget cuts and aid to Israel in this ability to keep the government funded? Well, the advantage here to the laddered CR is that it, it just basically doesn't pile everything all up on one deadline. Now, I think the speaker was hoping that by separating out anything that could be controversial, uh, keep the single subject stuff elsewhere, that that would bring in some additional support. You're really trying to get people to buy into the idea that it's reasonable to extend the time a little more. But some say, look, enough with 2023 spending levels. We want to see some cuts. Do you anticipate that the House will have to accept what the Democrats in the upper chamber offer because they're opposed to this two-tier approach? You know, I think the House has a good chance of getting this through on its own merits. Um, Chuck Schumer in the Senate has said he's at least open to it. Mitch McConnell is behind it. And I think if the House can get it passed and send it over to the Senate, so that puts the onus on them to deal with what the House has sent. So I think there's a good chance if the House can get this work done today and get this passed, which is uncertain, uh, then I think the Senate might feel like they need to go along and just not pile up against another shutdown. Lawrence, do House Republicans have any other plan if this CR doesn't pass? Uh, apparently not. <laughs> if the Democrats won't accept a CR with spending cuts, some Republicans won't accept any CR. If this one doesn't make it, uh, they're really going to be up against it for the remainder of the, this week. Three more days till the shutdown. Well, Lawrence Wilson, thank you so much for weighing in on this. Reporter for the Epic Times. My pleasure. Janet Yellen held a press conference at yesterday's APEC Financial Ministers meeting in San Francisco. We have more from the reporter on the ground. And coming up, Donald Trump Jr. says his father is an artist in real estate, but one of his father's properties may not be as successful as he thought. Arlene Richards reports from the New York courthouse. Major traffic issues in L.A. after a massive fire closes down part of a highway. What are officials saying about the cause of the blaze? Hear more after this short break.
Welcome back. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warning that China's slowing economy could hurt other countries. But her stance on whether the U.S. should decouple with China is drawing criticism from some Republicans. And today's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more from the APEC summit in San Francisco. Good morning to both of you. During a press conference here in the APEC summit in San Francisco on Tuesday night, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said that during her meetings with Chinese officials, they talked about a slowdown in the Chinese economy. That it presents a downside uh, risk to the economic outlook that could affect um, probably not so much the United States, but many um, APEC economies that have deep trade relations. And while the U.S. is seeking to strengthen a supply chain security by moving a supply chain away from mainland China, Yellen says the U.S. is not trying to decouple from China economically. But the chairman of the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party, Mike Gallagher, told me over the weekend that the U.S. should decouple from China strategically. Watch. I think we have to decouple in key areas. When we decided to shift from most favored nation status to permanent normal trade relations status and then WTO accession, we abandoned the human rights agenda uh, with China. Completely abandoned it, right? It's this resurrection of an idea we thought was dead, whereby we can engage with China economically, diplomatically, and hope that they become a responsible stakeholder in the international system. That's failed for over 20 years. It's going to fail again if we go back to that. Meanwhile, as President Biden is set to meet with the head of the Chinese Communist Party here in San Francisco on Wednesday, massive protests are being planned as some Chinese dissidents and victims of the Chinese Communist Party's persecution are coming out to protest Xi's presence here. They say that Xi should not be welcomed here as he's the culprit of China's many human rights abuses. Reporting from San Francisco, Iris Tao, NTD News. California Governor Gavin Newsom is facing some pushback for recent comments about the obvious cleanup efforts before the APEC summit. Social media users online are questioning the timing of the removal of homeless camps in San Francisco. Residents and business owners also criticized the sanitation campaign, calling it a Band-Aid solution. Here's the governor on Fox News yesterday. You know, folks say, oh, they're just cleaning up this place because all those fancy leaders are coming into town. Um, that's true because it's true but it's also true for months and months and months prior to APEC we've been having different conversations the efforts were focused on the south of market and tenderloin neighborhoods many were asking why action wasn't taken sooner images circulating online show a glaring contrast from before and after APEC began Downtown San Francisco has been transformed with high security provisions for the APEC summit. Multiple protests have already happened, with more to come. Entities Jason Blair has the story. Downtown San Francisco has basically morphed into a high security zone. As you can see behind me, there are high fences in place. A four by four block area won't allow any unauthorized vehicles in. And then there's a red zone area inside there that won't allow any unauthorized pedestrians. Many of Apex meetings and activities are scheduled to happen here. Other street closures in the city's Knob Hill neighborhood near hotels where some of the high-ranking attendees, including President Biden, are said to be staying. A three-by-three block area is closed off with similar provisions as the downtown security area. 
Public transit has also been affected by many reroutes. San Francisco's famous cable cars have been temporarily replaced by buses. The San Francisco Police Department started training and getting ready for the trade summit since February. Two to 5,000 police and federal officers are expected to be in town, which is about one officer for every four attendees. However, a lot of the law enforcement will be outside and around the city deterring possible threats and managing multiple protests expected through the week. And there's more protest activity expected to happen. Most of it will likely be on Wednesday and Thursday when APEC will be at its peak. As far as meetings, the APEC CEO Summit welcome reception is scheduled to happen at the Moscone Center downtown. Reporting in San Francisco, Jason Blair, NTD News. The Supreme Court now has a code of conduct following months of public scrutiny and pressure from Democratic lawmakers. But the justices say the code is nothing new. The justices describe the new code as gathering and codifying rules they already follow. It's based on an existing code of conduct for lower courts. The new code is an attempt to improve public confidence in the high court. Months of headlines have accused justices of failing to report luxury gifts and trips. The move comes after mounting pressure from Democrats in Congress who threatened to pass new bills mandating just such a code. All nine justices agreed to it, but they didn't make clear how the code would be enforced. And Donald Trump Jr. returns to the stand. This time, he's being questioned by his own team as they begin their defense in the New York civil fraud trial that could change the senior Trump's New York empire. Our legal correspondent, Arlene Richards, has more. The older son of the former president is on the stand Monday for the second time, with Attorney General Letitia James not far behind. Donald Trump Jr. is the first witness for the defense in the New York fraud case filed by James. She accuses Donald Jr. of joining his father and his younger brother in defrauding banks and insurance companies. The last time he was on the stand, Donald Jr. said he didn't know much about his father's financial statements, which are at the heart of this trial. He said he only signed financial statements after checking first with his accountants and legal department. On Monday, Trump Jr. told the story of his father's real estate empire. The defense examination led the younger Trump through the family assets dating back to the 1900s. Trump Jr. touted his father's successes and called him an artist with real estate. The attorney general objected to the lengthy testimony, but the judge sided with the defense attorneys, saying let him go ahead and talk about how great the Trump organization is. Donald Jr. also talked about his role in the Trump Organization after his father became president. Both he and younger brother Eric took over managing the assets. Trump Jr. handled the bigger deals while Eric took care of the day-to-day -day management. The older brother bragged that Trump Tower was 90% occupied. On a very short cross-examination, the AG's attorney said the occupancy dropped to 77%. She showed documents stating the mortgage was transferred to a special servicer and that it was on the watch list. Trump Jr. quietly responding that he didn't know for sure if that was true. Trump Jr.'s testimony ended before court was adjourned. The defense then called tax attorney Sherry Dillon, 
The state previously asked her about a 2015 appraisal of a Trump estate valued at $56.5 million. But in financial statements from 2011 to 2021, it was valued between $261 and $291 million. On Monday, Dillon explained her role as a tax attorney involved in conversations about the property appraisals. The Senate is considering a rule change to confirm military promotions. Senate Leader Chuck Schumer said yesterday the Senate Rules Committee will mark up a resolution today to confirm over 350 military promotions at once. This will break the hold that Senator Tommy Tuberville has maintained for nine months in protest to the Pentagon's abortion policy. Schumer said when the Rules Committee approves the measure, he will bring it to the Senate floor for a vote as soon as possible. However, it's unclear if there is enough Republican support to pass the resolution. If it does pass, Senate procedure for confirming non-political military promotions would change for the rest of the 118th Congress, which ends in January 2025. Senator Tuberville has been holding up confirmations over a Pentagon policy that pays for abortion-related travel for service members. Two Republican congressmen from Texas will not be running for re-election in 2024. Veteran Representative Michael Burgess will retire at the end of this term. He's been in Congress since 2003 and is a senior member of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. Representative Pat Fallon has been a member of Congress since 2021. He has filed to run for his old state Senate seat. Fallon is currently a member of the Armed Services and Oversight Committees. And Democrats flipped a Pennsylvania County's Board of Commissioners for the first time in over 100 years. Republicans have controlled the Dauphin County Board since 1919, according to PennLive.com. The Democratic win was by no means an easy one. It was a tightly contested race. Yesterday's unofficial vote tally showed challenger Justin Douglas over incumbent Chad Saylor by less than 1% of the total vote. Saylor announced his concession to Douglas on social media yesterday. According to the Pennsylvania Capitol star, Douglas pledged to focus on the county's correction system, mental health care services, and investing in the county's workforce. Officials say the massive Los Angeles freeway fire last weekend was arson. Flames damaged several support columns and the freeway deck of an elevated part of a Santa Monica freeway. Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass said yesterday that no connection had been found between the fire and a nearby homeless encampment. We know that the origin of this is arson. We do not know other information. There is no reason to assume that the origin of this fire or the reason this fire happened was because there were unhoused individuals nearby. Governor Gavin Newsom declared a state of emergency Sunday to expedite repairs to the freeway. He vowed to get it reopened as soon as possible. Around 300,000 vehicles travel the freeway every day. Detours are expected to snarl already congested downtown LA traffic. The state fire marshal declined to give details about how investigators reached their conclusion of arson or how the fire was ignited. And police in Houston are praising an ex-con for his heroic actions over the weekend when he pulled a wounded police officer to safety. John Lally has served time for burglary, gun possession and other crimes. Now he's a good Samaritan. 
Investigators say a carjacking suspect shot Officer Jay Gibson. John Lally was driving on a Houston freeway when he saw police lights flashing behind him. He initially thought officers were pulling him over, but soon realized more than half a dozen vehicles had crashed. Moments later, Lally saw Officer Gibson get shot. He jumped out of his car and ran to help, but found himself in the middle of a shootout between police and the suspect. According to local media, he helped another officer drag the wounded Gibson to safety behind a vehicle. The wounded officer was shot in the leg and is recovering. Police say the suspect later died at a hospital. The Houston Police Department plans to formally thank and acknowledge Lally for his heroism. Yeah, heroic indeed. Right. Yeah, it takes a lot of bravery to do what Lally did. And it just goes to show you that people can change for the better. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It doesn't necessarily mean anything that they're formally incarcerated or anything, right? There is a lot of, um, I guess there is a lot of uh, stereotypical stereotypes um, surrounding that, but it was definitely bravery what he showed there. Yeah, breaking any stereotypes he did. All right, we're heading to break. The IDF uncovers evidence of tunnels linking Hamas operations to Gazan hospitals as Israeli troops push further into northern Gaza. The White House clarifies President Biden's comments on Gaza hospitals needing protection as Israeli tanks deploy on Al-Shifa's doorstep. Stay tuned. I am Stephanie Cox in New York City, and we are NTD News. Good to have you back. Israel's military says special forces found signs of hostages being held in a children's hospital in their ongoing offensive push in northern Gaza. The Rantisi Hospital, just north of Al Shifa, housed Gaza's only pediatric cancer ward. Israeli forces say a terrorist weapons cache and evidence of operations were found inside. Now Israel is sounding the alarm with Shifa Hospital becoming a focal point in the war. Israel maintains an interconnected Hamas tunnel network and a command center is built under and beside it. But Israel declares its war is only against Hamas and not the innocent people of Gaza. It's sending incubators and ventilators to the largest hospital in the Strip in coordination with Al-Shifa staff. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the hostages and the hospitals. I'm here in Gaza City. The Israel Defense Forces on Monday shared evidence of terrorist operations near and inside Rantisi Hospital in northern Gaza. IDF spokesperson Daniel Hagari says this is a senior Hamas terrorist house right next to a school. He says it belongs to the head of Hamas naval operations, a leader of the October 7th terrorist attacks. His house is 200 yards from the hospital, the hospital of Rantisi. Next to his house, there is a tunnel. He then goes to the tunnel entrance, watched by soldiers and a robot sentry. Hagari then heads to another tunnel entrance nearby to show terrorist infrastructure and wiring. He says an explosive and bulletproof door was found at the bottom of the tunnel shaft, close to 70 feet down. So it's a covered tunnel, so nobody can find it. Hagari shows the tunnel entrance's proximity to Rantisi Hospital, which appears to have been since covered with debris. And this is the place where I showed you the tunnel. I want you to see. The rear admiral then goes inside the hospital where special forces found evidence of hostages being held. We are now in the area of the basement of the hospital. He shows a room where terrorists kept weapons, ammo and explosives. Hamas is using hospitals like we showed the evidence 
in Shifa Hospital. In other hospital, we are now seeing it in life in Rantisi Hospital. The IDF spokesperson emphasizes the gravity of the situation. People shooting RPGs from hospitals. This is Hamas firing RPGs for hospitals. The world has to understand who is Israel fighting against. In the basement, Hagari shows motorcycles he says were used on October 7th to bring captives back. They even have bullets, a woman, clothes, and a rope, a rope next to the legs. Hagari says diapers and other signs suggest infants were kept hostage here. Look above it. It's a baby bottle. It's a baby bottle in a basement above a World Health Organization sign. A room with a crude living quarters includes a small kitchen, shower, and makeshift ventilation. Finally, Hagari shows a room that IDF suspects was used to hold hostages. No reason to put here a curtain unless you want to film hostages and deliver movies. Last, he shows a list, a dated log of guard duty, and a hint at when the hostages and terrorists left. Hagari says Rantisi is not the only hospital in Gaza being used like this and called out the World Health Organization. And the world should know that. That's a crime. That's a war crime. That's a crime against humanity. That's against international law. Who gives money to these hospitals? Who shares this hospital and embraces this hospital? Is helping Hamas effort. The IDF is urging everyone to evacuate northern Gaza and coordinating with the Shifa director general to get staff and patients out. It released a recorded phone call confirming the delivery of incubators and ventilators for babies in the meantime, along with photos and a video regarding the transfer. Extensive offers are underway to ensure that these incubators right here behind me can reach babies in Gaza without delay. Our war is against Hamas and not the people of Gaza. Israeli tanks were stationed outside the gates of Al-Shifa Monday, with hundreds of patients still waiting to be evacuated. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. The White House looked to clarify comments from President Biden yesterday after he said hospitals in Gaza must be protected. The administration says Biden was talking about the extra burden Israeli forces are dealing with in their ground incursion. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says Biden was referring to the difficulty troops face because hospitals ought to be protected from military operations. He also says Hamas is using Palestinians. Here's Kirby on the hospital situation. Hamas does shelter themselves uh, behind uh, civilian infrastructure, be it hospitals, schools, tunnels under houses and apartment buildings. They deliberately pl place the people of Gaza at greater risk by how they, by how they operate and conduct themselves. And so uh, it's a tough problem set for the Israeli Defense Forces. Le legitimate targets are terrorists and uh, Hamas leaders, of course, and their ability to continue to conduct planned resource operations, also legitimate uh, targets. And a group of progressive Democrats has joined the activist group Rabbis for a Ceasefire. They're calling for more than humanitarian pauses in the war between Israel and Hamas. The activist group held a press conference in Washington, D.C., outlining their position. Ceasefire means release the hostages. Yes. All, the hostages. All the hostages. Ceasefire means stop the bombardment now. Yes. Yes. Ceasefire means defend the innocent. Yes. We are being called to be higher than our history. Yes. 
Congresswoman Tlaib said the group is calling for an end to the violence and that a humanitarian pause is not enough. Rabbi Brian Walt says this is not just a political issue, but a spiritual issue. He said it's not about us against them, it's about all of us. Thousands are expected in Washington, D.C. today in a rally denouncing a rise in anti-Semitism and supporting the release of hostages. The event is organized by the Jewish Federation of North America and the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. The National Park Service has granted a permit for 100,000 attendees and the D.C. police have requested the assistance of the National Guard. The event aims to provide a sense of community and unity after an increase in anti-Semitic incidents following the Hamas attack in Israel. And after the break, we take a look at the upcoming holiday shopping season and how retailers are faring. And food prices are up this Thanksgiving. We speak to the host of Entity Business for tips on how to save money when making Thanksgiving dinner. Is it better to go for the low-hanging fruit and pass on buying a home right now because rent is cheaper in some areas? A CEO tells us what you could be missing if you do after the break. Thank you for staying with us. Uh, with the holiday shopping season approaching, how are retailers and consumers doing amid the current inflationary environment? Major U.S. retailers could be saddled with too much stock. We're joined by Entity Business host Don Ma to discuss this. So Don, give us an overview of how retailers are failing right now. All right, so uh, this company called LSEG Workplace, it's a financial and news platform. They did. Uh, calculations of inventory turnover of these uh, retailers and it seems like uh, it's not looking good uh, for some of these uh, retailers they have too much stock it seems like and this is the second straight year in a row actually and this is not good for retailers retailers do not want this because of course uh, it drives up expenses potentially for these retailers uh, because uh, it needs to think about handling storage transportation of these products um, so it has that to consider but it's also potentially uh, harmful for its bottom line because if you can't get rid of stock what do you do you lower prices right you you put up discounts for for these products and that could uh, cut into its profit margins so you know, it, it's, according to this platform, it seems like there's some trouble facing these retailers. Um, and it's especially true for uh, stores like uh, dollar stores, department stores, clothing, uh, and ac accessory stores. Um, so that's just the overview here. Mm. So some difficulties for retailers there. What about the consumers, though? Yeah, um, well, consumers, it seems like, are not in terrific shape as well. Uh, they're only expected to spend three to four percent more this shopping season, uh, basically in line with inflation. But it's actually the slowest pace of growth uh, in, in five years. Uh, so that's not good. This is according to some uh, industry estimates. And it, this as well, you know, the state of the consumer uh, actually poses more challenges for the retailer as well because uh, it's, uh, it's going to be harder to get rid of stock if consumers 
are not spending as much, right? So this is uh, sort of a double-ended uh, sword here, uh, double-edged sword. And shoppers are cautious, of course, because uh, of high inflation, as you mentioned uh, earlier, and as well as student loan resumptions. We heard about that a few months ago. Um, and high interest rates, right? Credit card rates are also very high. So consumers are uh, cautious, potentially, and some uh, analysts are also pessimistic about this situation. Um, and it could be bad for investors too. I'll just mention this at the end, because if you're holding a, a company stock and, and they can't get rid of their inventory, I mean, their shares could potentially go down. Ah, well, Thanksgiving dinner must go on. But Don, we know that the rate of increase in prices, inflation itself is increasing and prices for food is so high right now. So is there anything that we can do to save a little bit of money for Thanksgiving dinner? Yeah, sure. Here's some tips. Uh, so turkey prices are down this year, uh, but some of the side dishes, it seems like, are going to cost more. Um, so some of my tips here is to Create a budget, of course. Uh, shop early and uh, shop, shop in bulk. Uh, start looking for those deals as, as early as possible, potentially even now. And when you go shopping, consider cutting, some, uh, cutting out some of the dishes that maybe aren't that popular at the table. Uh, for me, you know, cranberry sauce. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but... Uh, I love I, cranberry sauce. Well, I guess it's just me then. <laughs> but another thing you can do is, you know, go to potluck. Uh, experts recommend uh, you asking guests to bring the desserts or side dishes. Um, that way you can split the cost. Uh, uh, that way uh, your mother-in-law will finally stop uh, complaining about your mashed potatoes. Uh, it's a little bit more work, but it's going to help you avoid high price markups. Some very good tips there. I'll, I'll write them down. But also, can we talk about just the housing market for a moment here? What about that new report from the National Association of Realtors? Um, sure. Uh, it seems like uh, the, the, the home buyers are uh, older and wealthier, it seems like, according to new data released Monday. Uh, the median age for uh, a repeat buyer was 58 years old. That's up uh, significantly, actually, from the median age of 36 years old, 36 years old in 1981. Uh, older buyers are edging out younger ones, it seems like, who are struggling to get into the market for the first time due to surging interest rates and high, high home prices. Uh, and this is partially due to low uh, inventory. Older buyers are also wealthier because uh, many of them sold their old homes and made a huge profit on that uh, before buying another one. Uh, some home sellers are, are older too. Uh, the typical home seller in 2023 was 60 years old. According to the data, they often go with the potential buyer making the most attractive offer, which gives older buyers a leg up. Oh, well, that's good. They have an advantage. Very interesting. Thank you for your update. Don Ma, host of Entity Business. Yeah, thank you, as always. And we're talking about buying houses now. Rent in some areas may be a bit cheaper than monthly mortgage payments. Does that mean it's a good time to hold off on buying a new home? It depends on a few factors, and I asked that question to Clifford Freeman, the CEO of the Cliff Freeman Group, and here's the answer he gave me. Kevin, that's a that's a great question. You know, at this very moment, uh, rents are slightly cheaper than owning a home. But if you're going to be in in a uh, in a domicile for any period of time, history tells us that it's much better to own 
than to rent over the longer term. Right. And what do you say to the people who want to be financially flexible with their home, but they don't want to waste any money on renting? You know, that's a great question. Um, the challenge with renting is rents go up consistently with inflation, just like home prices do. Sometimes we see a lag uh, with with rent increases. But, you know, overall, the flexibility that I think people are looking for um, would be, you know, better served uh, if they looked at it from an investment standpoint. Uh, and if you look at net worth for renters versus homeowners, uh, the NAR does a study every year, and that number is something like $400,000 more for homeowners than for renters. So again, depending on what the, the needs are, if you're going to be moving every year, then there's no doubt that the, the transaction costs with owning a home are going to reduce your return significantly. And typically, it takes about four to five years to recover your investment of purchasing a home, the closing costs and so forth, before it becomes uh, a positive uh, cash flow with the appreciation and equity buildup. I see what you mean. You got to think long term there and have maybe some relief later on down the road in life. According to Realtor.com, renting can be about $1,200 cheaper right now if you're renting a two bedroom apartment than, say, getting a home because these mortgage rates are pretty high right now. Do you think that this is a good idea to go with renting given that? Um, I, I think that article really, if you sort of do a little deeper dive into it, the the rental rates and the, the delta between the rental rates and home appreciation are like the weather. They're different all over the country. So it really depends on where you live. Uh, for example, if we just picked Austin, Texas right now, there was a huge run up in the last few years in home prices there and rental rates did not keep up. Part of the reason why is there's about, I would say uh, almost 100,000 uh, students who live there that keep that rental rate really depressed if you just look at averages. And so if you compare living in a dorm with living in, you know, someplace uh, in the hills in, in Austin with a four bedroom, four bath, beautiful home overlooking the lake, you know, there is a substantial difference. But I think that it really gets down to quality of life issues. And the question is, would you really, you know, be able to be comfortable living in a two-bedroom apartment in Austin versus a single-family home? And I think that question is pretty, pretty easy to answer. Well, thanks for helping us navigate the housing market. Clifford Freeman, CEO of the Cliff Freeman Group. Thank you, Kevin. That's interesting that he actually laid out everything that we should consider there. I think that's helpful. Yeah, Freeman made a lot of good points. And, you know, there's just so much to that equation because think about it. If you rent, you don't have to worry about maintenance. That's right. At the same time, in New York, right, if you buy a condo, there is a lot of maintenance fees. There is a lot of, so you, you pay anyway. But at the same time, you know, if we were just talking about cost, I have friends that are considering to buy, even though mortgage rates are high right now, I guess housing prices are comparatively low, and they're expecting that once those rates are lower again, the housing prices will shoot up even higher. So basically now they're like, oh, this is actually a good opportunity. Well, good for them getting in the housing market. Yeah. And, you know, we've seen from Freeman that the net worth goes up. But there's another thing about renting and that it doesn't help your credit. So that's another advantage mm, that they have for them. There we go. Mm -hmm.
All these points. Um, all right, we're moving on though. Our National Speech and Debate Association competition skewed to favor more liberal viewpoints. NTD speaks with a high school debater who says conservative students are facing a stacked deck. Coming. I'm Jason Perry in New York City, and we are NTD News. Thank you for staying with us, and good morning again. The Debate Club, a space where most imagine a free exchange of ideas can take place and is encouraged. But some say that's not the case within the National Speech and Debate Association. NTD's Daniel Monahan spoke with a high school debater for an inside view. Brianna Watley says she first became interested in debate when her fourth grade teacher told her about it. Loving the idea of hashing out topics with other students, she took it as an elective throughout middle school and started competing when she was in ninth grade. My favorite part about debate is how much information you get from it and how knowledgeable you become. But her love of debate took a dark turn in March of this year when she says a judge censored her at a debate tournament. I went to the NSDA National Qualifiers, which is a tournament that would propel me to the national tournament, right? There's a lot of scholarship opportunities there. But what happened was I was debating a topic on President Biden's foreign policy, and I was mentioning the Trump administration to make a comparison. Right. And before the round even begins, my judge tells me not to mention President Trump because she deemed it inappropriate. Watley says the incident showed her firsthand how judges take control of debate rounds and viewpoints. It's a culture with the National Speech and Debate Association. They don't want students to bring up information that will contradict their narrative. Right. And so it's a common trend. You look at the topics that the NSDA brings up, for example, should the United States ban oppressive voter ID laws, right? The word oppressive is inputting their narrative on what they believe voter IDs to be, right? And so it's, it's just a trend within the organization to push their leftist ideals onto students. As an example, Watley cites a debate association website, tabroom.com, where judges write their debate preferences, such as disliking when a student speaks really fast or preferring students to focus on the human impacts of arguments. But it's been hijacked to where now judges are just posting their political ide ideologies and telling students that they must adhere to it. And so Lila Lavender was one of the extreme cases where she straight out said that she was a Marxist Leninist Maoist and she wouldn't check, she would check every student at the door to make sure that they weren't, you know, posting any arguments that would contradict hers, like making pro-capitalist arguments or defending Israel. So that's just an extreme case of how these judges will take control. 
The National Speech and Debate Association responded in a May statement to criticism of alleged judge bias, saying, The 47,000 Judge Paradigms House on tabroom.com represent the opinions and viewpoints of the individual paradigm authors, adding that it asks judges to reflect and remove bias and unfair feedback from each ballot. Watley says it is her hope for the future that Americans will come to see that they're all on the same team and want what's best for the country. And so once we start having these open conversations and start understanding each other, we'll realize that we have more, you know, more in common than differences. And that's the problem. They want to hijack the debate space where they're only having one-sided conversations and it's meaningless. There's no value from it. The high school debater is calling on the National Speech and Debate Association to take action. Your association has helped me grow as a person, as a debater, and being able to have these open conversations. But I can't do that if a judge is telling me that I can't bring up certain arguments or I have to adhere to absurd rules that get in the way of having free and open debate. The National Speech and Debate Association's equity statement says it is committed to modeling and fostering diversity, equity, and inclusion for all speech and debate communities. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Actually, some serious allegations, especially if you think about that, you know, these debates are to develop critical thinking for the next generation. Yeah, that's the whole point of the debate, is to present opposing views and critically assess them. And that's, that's another thing that's really important here is that when you see censorship in that sphere, that's the people's development that you're mm -hmm. affecting at that point. Right. Because if they're not able to formulate their opinions and express them, then that's gonna limit their ability to inform other people on this. And another thing that you think about too is that if you have a debate, let it be known. Present your argument. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. If it doesn't hold up, well then it's gonna be clear and evident. You don't have to artificially stop it from that's being right. presented. That's right. Um, so we are heading to a short break here, so stay with us. There are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price this is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. Yeah, so there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Good morning and welcome back to NTD. Good morning. Here are top stories. About half a trillion dollars. A new report says that's what border policies under the Biden administration are costing American taxpayers. An analyst explains where that money is going. Eight Republicans join with Democrats against a resolution to impeach DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene reacts. Will Congress avoid a fast-approaching partial government shutdown this weekend? House members will weigh in on Speaker Johnson's two-step funding plan in a floor vote today. 
One woman from England shows us her method of spending less money on food and preventing waste at the same time. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Today is Tuesday, November 14th, so let's head to today's top news. The House of Representatives voted late last night against advancing a resolution to impeach DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Democrats originally planned to try to kill the resolution, but instead moved it to send it back to the Homeland Security Committee. The committee has been conducting its own Mayorkas investigation. The resolution was filed by Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene last week. It accuses Mayorkas of high crimes and misdemeanors and the willful admittance of illegal border crossers. Eight Republicans joined Democrats to pass the motion. They included Representatives Patrick McHenry, John Duarte, and Ken Buck. Greene had a message for them after the vote. Here's the Congresswoman yesterday. They're going to face their voters. Uh, the American people are fed up. We have an invasion at the southern border and Americans are dying every single day. But all we hear about is send money to Ukraine and send money to this. And people want Mayorkas impeached. They want accountability. And I, I cannot believe this. I'm outraged. Time is running out for Congress to avoid a partial government shutdown this weekend. Today is the first time the House is able to vote on Speaker Mike Johnson's two-step funding plan. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the move, which some GOP members are already pushing back on. Speaker Johnson's unusual two-step approach would extend funding for many government operations through the middle of January, while defense funding would run through early February. Gentlemen. But some Republicans oppose the stopgap bill for not cutting spending. Representative Matt Gates says Speaker Johnson's laddered bill fails to meet the mark. I understand that Mike Johnson is looking for about 75 days of breathing room here. I don't think that we made the right choices. The country's with us on the border. 75% of the country believes Washington spends too much money. I think we should have chosen one of those high hills to fight on. The lack of support from some in the GOP puts Johnson in a similar position to his predecessor, Kevin McCarthy, who relied on Democratic votes to keep the government open. Congressman Chip Roy says the House Speaker should not rely on Democrats to pass the stopgap bill under a suspension of the rules. Right now, I oppose this measure. I think it's a mistake. I, I don't support the rule advancing it. Suspension of the rules is a procedure requiring the support of two-thirds of the House. The procedure would allow Johnson to bypass a special vote where GOP members who oppose the bill could block it. Other Republicans like Senator Mitch McConnell have a brighter outlook on Johnson's plan. been encouraged this year by the progress our Appropriations Committee has made toward restoring regular order to the way we fund the federal government. Some congressional Democrats also indicated they were open to Johnson's plan. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries said his party is carefully evaluating the proposal from the Republican leadership before giving approval. In a letter to Democratic colleagues, Jeffries noted that the GOP package met the Democratic demands to keep funding at current levels without steep reductions or what he called divisive Republican policy priorities. If successful on the House floor, the stopgap bill would need to pass the Democratic-majority Senate. 
Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has expressed support for Speaker Johnson's plan, especially its absence of spending cuts. If the bill is successful, it would then need to be signed into law by President Joe Biden by midnight on Friday. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Earlier, I spoke with Lawrence Wilson, a reporter for the Epic Times, to get more details on Johnson's two-step stopgap funding bill. Well, basically, it's a CR, continuing revolution, that's a stopgap spending bill, but it comes in two stages. Uh, basically, just extends existing 2023 funding across the board, but in one batch that covers four broad areas of the federal government. That would expire the next time on January 19th. The remainder, which is really the bulk of the spending, would expire on February 2nd. And that buys uh, you know, a couple of more months for Congress to basically get its work done and get the 12 spending bills passed. So what is the advantage to Johnson's plan to avoid these budget cuts and aid to Israel in this ability to keep the government funded? Well, the advantage here to the latter CR is that it, it just basically doesn't pile everything all up on one deadline. Now, I think the speaker was hoping that by separating out anything that could be controversial, uh, keep the single subject stuff elsewhere, that that would bring in some additional support. You're really trying to get people to buy into the idea that it's reasonable to extend the time a little more. But some say, look, enough with 2023 spending levels. We want to see some cuts. Lawrence, do House Republicans have any other plan if this CR doesn't pass? Uh, apparently not. <laughs> if the Democrats won't accept a CR with spending cuts, some Republicans won't accept any CR. If this one doesn't make it, uh, they're really going to be up against it for the remainder of the, this week. Three more days till the shutdown. And we're heading to break about half a trillion dollars. A new report says that's what border policies under the Biden administration are costing American taxpayers. A new testimony from Capitol Hill on COVID vaccines and the injuries possibly caused by them. We have more from the witnesses. We take a look at how one woman from England saves money every year on food and prevents waste at the same time. That's coming up. Good morning again and welcome back. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warning the China's slowing economy could hurt other countries. But her stance on whether the U.S. should decouple with China is drawing criticism from some Republicans. And today's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more from the APEC summit in San Francisco. Good morning to both of you. During a press conference here in the APEC summit in San Francisco on Tuesday night, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said that during her meetings with Chinese officials, they talked about a slowdown in the Chinese economy. That it presents a downside a risk to the economic outlook that could affect um, probably not so much the United States, but many um, APEC economies that have deep trade relations. 
And while the U.S. is seeking to strengthen the supply chain security by moving its supply chain away from mainland China, Yellen says the U.S. is not trying to decouple from China economically. But the chairman of the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party, Mike Gallagher, told me over the weekend that the U.S. should decouple from China strategically. Watch. I think we have to decouple in key areas. When we decided to shift from most favored nation status to permanent normal trade relations status and then WTO accession, we abandoned the human rights agenda yes. uh, with China. Completely abandoned it, right? It's this resurrection of an idea we thought was dead, whereby we can engage with China economically, diplomatically, and hope that they become a responsible stakeholder in the international system. That's failed for over 20 years. It's going to fail again if we go back to that. Meanwhile, as President Biden is set to meet with the head of the Chinese Communist Party here in San Francisco on Wednesday, massive protests are being planned as some Chinese dissidents and victims of the Chinese Communist Party's persecution are coming out to protest Xi's presence here. They say that Xi should not be welcomed here as he's the culprit of China's many human rights abuses. Reporting from San Francisco, Iris Tao, NTD News. California Governor Gavin Newsom is facing some pushback for recent comments about the obvious cleanup efforts before the APEC summit. Social media users online are questioning the timing of the removal of homeless camps in San Francisco. Residents and business owners also criticized the sanitation campaign, calling it a Band-Aid solution. Here's the governor on Fox News yesterday. No, folks say, oh, they're just cleaning up this place because all those fancy leaders are coming into town. Um, that's true, because it's true. But it's also true for months and months and months prior to APEC. We've been having different conversations. The efforts were focused on the south of Market and Tenderloin neighborhoods. Many were asking why action wasn't taken sooner. Images circulating online show a glaring contrast from before and after APEC began. Hundreds of billions of dollars. That's how much Americans have to pay to care for illegal immigrants released into the country per year. This is according to a new congressional report released Monday. Congressman Jim Jordan says that's more than the state budgets of California and Ohio combined. Republicans on the House Homeland Security Committee released the report documenting the cost of the Biden administration's border policies. It covered a range of aspects, including health care, law enforcement, education, housing, and transportation. It finds that Americans could pay up to $451 billion per year to care for illegal immigrants in the United States. Hospital and emergency room care are among the most significant expenses. Committee Chairman Mark Green said it is unconscionable for Secretary Mayorkas and President Biden to force the American people to pick up the tab for the crisis their border policies created. And COVID vaccines and the injuries possibly caused by them. And today's Daniel Monahan has new testimony from Capitol Hill on the subject organized by Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. Dr. Robert Malone dedicated much of his early career to the development of mRNA technology. The vaccine pioneer says physicians have been actively disincentivized to not report vaccine injury symptoms to VAERS. Malone criticized the response of government agencies like the CDC to possible COVID vaccine injuries. And as even the New York Times has acknowledged, the CDC has become a partisan political operation. Malone says he took the COVID vaccine himself because he had long COVID. 
And I had a series of adverse events, including hypertension, elevated heart rate, tachycardia, uh, restless leg syndrome, POTS, uh, post, uh, postural orthostatic hypertension, and uh, uh, tinnitus, I still have ringing in my ears. Representative Matt Gates says too many liability protections were created for pharmaceutical companies. In the absence of longitudinal data, we required it for participation in everyday life in a lot of states and jurisdictions, and that resulted in a number of vaccine injuries where people now are left without adequate redress of their grievances. Gates also discussed holding people accountable. The pharmaceutical companies that made gajillions of dollars off of these mandates uh, ought to have to resolve the injuries and they ought to compensate for the injuries for the people who bore the brunt of that. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene says the COVID vaccines should never have been forced on the public or approved by the FDA. Um, and I think the FDA should be held accountable. I think the people that pushed them should be held accountable. And I believe the liability uh, restrictions should be removed so that patients, people that have been injured or had a loved one that died, so they can move forward in court. Obstetrics and gynecology specialist Kimberly Biss says many women who took the vaccines suffer from heavy bleeding after giving birth. And the usual maneuvers we do to stop the bleeding are not working. And they're ending up having to have surgeries, and some of them are ending up having to have a hysterectomy, which would render them not able to have any more babies. Biz says the narrative around COVID vaccine injuries is so strong that scientists can't get approved to study the problems. The gynecology specialist says doctors who question the narrative could risk having their licenses stripped away from them. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And just a quick correction on that border story. The 450 approximately billion dollars is not per year, but that's actually since January 20, 2021, when Biden took office. So that's the total amount. And the DHS officials are actually pushing back on that impeachment resolution of Mayorkas, saying that that's a charade and that Mayorkas is protecting country from fentanyl and cyber attacks. But the fact still remains that about 6 million illegal border crossers have come into this country, and that's not including the one and a half million known gotaways. Mm. Thank you. Important addition or correction here. Before we move on to some lighter news, NASA astronauts Jasmine Mogabelli and Laurel O'Hara made their first spacewalk outside the International Space Station recently. The pair spent several hours outside doing maintenance work, but accidentally dropped a tool bag. Luckily, the tools were not required for the rest of their tasks. NASA says Mission Control analyzed the back's trajectory and determined that risk of recontacting the station was low. It says the onboard crew and space station are safe with no action required. According to EarthSky, a website tracking cosmic events, the tool bag is orbiting Earth ahead of the ISS. For the next few months, it may be possible to view the bag with binoculars before it slips into Earth's atmosphere and burns up. Hmm. So it's not rocket science, it's bag science now. There you go. Always good for a pun. All right, imagine being able to save a bundle each year and reduce food waste in the process. That's exactly what a woman from England did. Now she's sharing her experience. Let's take a look. 
Kate Hall from Orpington in the UK has adopted a unique approach when it comes to preparing meals. It involves freezing ingredients individually. I was a mum with a little toddler and a really small baby and for years I'd batch cooked and relied on batch cooking but I'd got to that point where I'd buy things with good intentions and it would just end up going off in the fridge and then I would rely on convenient options like takeaways and you know sort of sling in the oven meals and it just got really expensive and um, I knew that I couldn't keep on doing that. She'd previously been freezing entire meals that when reheated could only be used once. Then Kate had a light bulb moment. If I can freeze a meal that I've cooked at home, why can't I freeze the ingredients to just give myself that little bit of time um, so that I can cook with them when I actually want to and when I've got the headspace to do it. So I just started freezing the random onion or half a pepper or all those bits and pieces that would usually sit in the bottom of the fridge and just go off and gradually over time. Kate says pretty much anything can be frozen. Things like vegetables, um, fruits, so things like berries, instead of letting them just go off and go into the bin, we'll eat what we want to eat fresh. But when we get the pun at home, if I know we're not going to get through the whole thing, I will freeze half of it so that I can then use that in smoothies or we can just snack on them frozen. Including even eggs. I can break the eggs out of their shells. You shouldn't freeze them in the shell. Um, but breaking them out of the shells and then whisking them up um, and freezing them in usable portions. Her method, she says, is saving her around $1,200 per year. Kate started sharing her ideas more with people after she was put onto furlough during the pandemic. During that time, she also started her own business writing ebooks, where she shared the tips and tricks she had learned through her experiences. My dad um, set up a business when I was very little and I've, I've watched him grow that. So I always knew that I wanted to create something, but I was never, I've never really been motivated by just making money from it. I wanted to do something that's useful to people as well. But after being let go from her job, Kate decided to go full steam ahead. I think I just... I think just because I felt so passionate about it, I, I wanted to make it into a business and I started putting courses together. And then as my sort of um, presence has grown, it's led to more projects in terms of brand work and, and working with corporates to speak to their staff and things like that. Um, and yeah, lo and behold, it, um, it sort of swarmed into a business, which is, is lovely. It's something I absolutely love doing. Kate says that on top of saving money, her approach to freezing also has a wider impact by reducing food waste. She's currently working on several projects, which are all centered around spending less and minimizing food waste, all of which she feels will help people get the confidence to try it for themselves. Well, Evelyn, on the surface, that freezing strategy really sounds like a solid idea. <laughs> I knew it. There was a pun incoming. I saw it. But yeah, I think as although I didn't really know that you could freeze all these foods like eggs or um, I, I know a lot of dairy products like sour cream, I think you're not supposed to necessarily freeze, but definitely saves money. And she was able to put a number on it, which was great. Yeah, three bucks a day. It could add up. And you know, when you think about it, this there's a pros and cons to everything. I mean, you lose a lot of nutrients and vitamins when you freeze stuff and it just doesn't taste quite as good. But but it saves money. <laughs> right. All right, we have to wrap up our show now, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. Have a great day, everyone. I'm Kevin Hogan.